If you have joined the world of people who subscribe to newsletters, they float into your inbox every day, and they're full of news and other stuff. It's really become one of the most popular and exciting and volatile and adaptable new media for conveying news and information. Uh, I do one, and I subscribe to a lot of them, uh, and they're changing the way that I consume news and maybe even the way that I approach reality. So we're going to tell you, tell you about the newsletter boom, some of the famous names who left their other homes and joined a place called Substack. There's a lot to tell you after the news. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Okay, very quickly before we begin, uh, I, I started kind of journaling my newsletter consumption this morning. So here, this takes me up to 10 a.m. Are you ready? Begins with Heather Cox Richardson, whom you will meet in the second segment of today's show, which is about newsletters. I'll skip over her for now. Next up in my inbox is Wunderkind Gabe Fleischer, who is also on the show today. Uh, next up, Eric Bollard. He's been on the show. He's usually really, really mad at the mainstream media for false equivalency between right-wing bullies and normal politicians. Oh, no, Greg Mitchell is just uh, clocked in. I love his newsletter without really knowing who he is. I thought for a while he was the Talking Points memo guy, but that's Josh Marshall. A favorite Greg Mitchell feature is the previous. It's a melange his, uh, of humor and politics and obsession about rock and roll. Uh, but one of the things he does that I like is he has some of the jokes from the previous day in The Onion, the Andy Borowitz late night. And finally, on to Mark Slutsky's Something Good newsletter. Uh, so anyway, that was how many newsletters I'd read as of 10 a.m. More are on the way. I got the tangle later. Uh, the author of that's going to be on with us. And Rusty Foster's Indispensable Today in Tabs will probably come to my inbox around two. But So what's going on here? We're having a newsletter moment. Here to help us understand it is Ben Smith. I'm a big fan of, and if he had a newsletter, I'd read it, but he's going to explain why he doesn't. Uh, ben Smith is the media columnist for the New York Times, founding uh, and former editor-in-chief uh, of BuzzFeed News. Uh, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me on. So um, there is, there's a newsletter moment going on. Newsletters aren't that new a form, but I'd say, you know, maybe from late 2020 through the present moment, there's this huge boom going on. Famous names in journalism are moving over to Substack. Large amounts of money are being slung around. And this clearly is kind of, you know, uh, 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 something's going on in journalism that is very, very much tied to newsletters. So so what is going on? Well, basically what's going on is that um, – people have figured out a way to get paid for writing newsletters. It's always been very common, you know, since the early days of email to, to subscribe to updates from somebody who, uh, you know, who was giving you the news of the day or their perspective or a roundup of links or, you know, your crazy uncle just sharing his thoughts. Um, but, but basically, you know, across the whole internet, and if you subscribe to Spotify, if you subscribe to Netflix, if you subscribe to the New York Times, you may have noticed that it's just gotten a lot easier for people to take money, for people to take your money on the Internet. <laughs> and there are fairly and it's not, you know, and there's a couple of fairly simple to use platforms. The best known is Substack, where I can, you know, where I can charge you for my newsletter without my having to, you know, do anything technical to build anything interesting or build anything technically complicated. And so 
a whole generation of journalists and people who have, you know, big followings and feel like they'd rather not be in the confines of a big institution um, are making, you know, are starting to make a living at it. Right. So, I mean, we can divide this into subgenres. I'm going to throw out, for the purposes of today's show, anything that's from a corporate entity. For example, this company that I work for, they put out a newsletter every day about everything going on in Connecticut public media. I I don't think that those are the same or that interesting. But let's talk about one of the other subgenres. So one of the other subgenres are either famous or or semi-famous journalists. We're talking Matt Taibbi, uh, Andrew Sullivan, Glenn Glenn Greenwald, and, and and Helen Peterson, who are either leaving or getting kicked out of somewhere else and coming to Substack. So can you say a little bit more about that? Like, what's what do you make of that? Um, well, actually, I'd like to first just sort of pull the lens back a little bit just to make sure. the point that this isn't really about journalism. Okay. Like adult <laughs> performers are doing this on OnlyFans. Musicians are doing it on Patreon. Um, there's a possibility for sort of individuals of all sorts yeah. to reach kind of their fans. And, but I, and it's having a huge impact on all sorts of industries, but journalism is, is absolutely one. And I think, you know, for people who, for reasons of kind of personality or of their interests um, would rather, t- you know, or because they think they could make more money at it, mm. um, you know, are, are kind of breaking off from big institutions. Also Momo, big institutions are sort of, rife with internal politics and worried about getting into trouble on Twitter and with their audiences. And so if you're a, if you're the sort of writer who likes to have huge fights on Twitter with people or who is sort of not, is, is outside some the, the political consensus of the place you work, this is a way to go and not, and not have to worry that you're going to get kind of a nervous email from your boss about the latest thing you tweeted. Right. I mean, I think uh, aren't there two other ways to think about this? One of them is that traditional forms of media aren't in many cases doing as well. And newspapers are doing terribly uh, right now, or at least uh, the ones that aren't big, gigantic New York Times type ones are doing terribly right now. And within news organizations, there is, as you're suggesting, this kind of fly specking of everybody's uh, point of view, use of language. I mean, you can, you know, be drummed out of your job for something you said outside the work environment. If you're Don McNeil from the New York Times on a trip, <laughs> as, you know, as a, a chaperone on a student trip somewhere, something you said. So it does seem to me that some of the more restless intellects, you know, the people who bridle at that kind of thing, they seem very, very attracted to this. And in many cases, if it's like Andrew Sullivan, his his regular gig dried up kind of for connected reasons, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, there's a basically a bunch of kind of left-wingers who aren't, mostly, Andrew's not that, but others who are who are basically their politics are on the left, but they disagree pretty strongly with some element of the kind of current consensus around particularly racial justice. But, you know, and, you know, I mean, and it's really complicated and I don't want to sort of overly characterize people's point of view, but they, but they want to have fights about issues that they're, that, that a lot of, inst- of big institutions right now are very much on eggshells about. Um, and so they just are going straight to their audiences. Although, but that's, but that, yeah. that's not the only reason to do it, though. It's yeah. also, I mean, Anne Helen Peterson, who you mentioned, is a really interesting example of a really kind of gifted culture writer who I think is really interested in having like kind of like calmer conversations with a community of people who are really interested in her work rather than fighting on social media with idiots who hate her. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the other thing. It's, it's a way to sort of like, I'm not doing, I'm not just writing this thing to kind of fling out onto the internet and have whoever read it. And many of them misinterpret it or hate the headline or decide they don't like it based on the person you're writing about. But instead it's like, I've gathered my group of a few thousand people who I know are really interested in this work, who I'm having kind of a running conversation with. And you can do a different kind of journalism when you are talking to people who you can kind of assume that they're in good faith, that they know where you're coming from, that they read your last piece. It's a, it's a very different and kind of, I think, quite satisfying kind of journalism. I, I can verify that. And, you know, McLuhan said the tool shapes the user. And I think that's also true of newsletters. I, I have a, my own daily radio show here. I have a column for Hearst, but I'm writing a newsletter and I found that after I'd written it for six months or so, I, I was writing a very, very different thing than I thought I was going to. And some of it, I think, is exactly the thing that you described. There's an elective quality to all of this. You decide to get somebody's newsletter. You could get my newsletter and, and Helen Peterson's. And, and so already we've formed a kind of implied covenant, which is going to allow us to proceed on a different basis. That's basically what you're saying, right? 
Yeah, that's right. You're writing for right. You're not screaming at the top of your lungs to try to get attention over the atten- over everybody else on social media whose incentive is to have the most extreme thing to say. So I think on one hand, newsletters can sort of provide an outlet for you know for politics that have been sort of drummed out of the mainstream in one way or the other. But I think they can also just provide kind of a quieter space almost to have a conversation. Now, there obviously is some agita about what happens if a lot of really, really talented and kind of franchise names start leaving conventional legacy media outlets to go off and make their own newsletters and collect their own revenue directly from the people who read. There's kind of a theory, a substack theory, that writers at big organizations are underpaid compared to what they can get doing this. Um, So, I I don't know, should, should anybody be worried? that, in fact, this is going to bleed talent out uh, out of already beleaguered journalistic institutions? Well, I think, you know, the franchise is an interesting metaphor, right? I mean, I do think that, you know, there's these two things happening in media right now that are kind of tearing it apart, one of which is you have this very strong kind of union-driven movement in newsrooms to say, like, people ought to be paid equally, people doing the same work should make the same money, we should, you know, have, like, kind of the lowest paid people should be making that much less than the higher paid people, which I think most people in newsrooms feel like, yeah, that's just, and that's right. And then on the other, you have the kind of dynamic you see in professional sports where the talent command a huge salary because they provide enormous value and people and, and the audience is drawn more and more to the individual star rather than the kind of the faceless brand. And so, and, and, and you know, and a sort of star journalist, you know, maybe does think, well, everybody ought to be paid equally, but also might think, man, I'm bringing in a lot of revenue to this company. And why am I not being compensated proportionate to that? I think those things are really, really deeply intentioned right now. Yeah, yeah, no, I would agree. Um, that, that's a, almost a separate conversation. Uh, so Substack obviously is the kind of Bigfoot uh, right now of this. Uh, on the other hand, as you have written, possibly the big threat will be from other platforms. Uh, Some of the big media companies are trying to develop their own newsletter platforms or have done so. And then there's something called Ghost. Explain to people uh, what Ghost is. It's, you know, basically, and I mean, I think if any of your readers ever tried to set up a blog, there was a time when it was like really hard and technically hard to write on the internet. And then suddenly a bunch of services like Blogger came along that made it really easy. And Mm -hmm. you could just log in and start typing onto the internet. And What's happening with newsletters that charge money for subscriptions is that Substack was sort of the first one to make it easy. And they also have a lot of venture capital and paid big advances to some writers to get on there first. But increasingly, it's becoming like a thing that is technically not that hard. Ghost is a service where for nine bucks a month, you can basically do the same thing. You can send a a newsletter to a bunch of readers. You can charge them whatever you feel like. And it's and you don't have to know anything about HTML. You don't have to code anything. It's very straightforward. <laughs> and I think increasingly it is going to be a thing just kind of anyone can do. So there's also, I think, a sense here, you know, the, the Internet um, has gone through a series of iterations and people who are doing work in, uh, in the digital universe, I think they're always kind of looking for the next Wild West. Uh, and, and I mean, I, I see that in some of the newsletters. I see that in some of the writing about the newsletters that People are looking for this space where, yeah, maybe they can do a little bit more of what they want or, uh, you know, I mean, Gawker and Deadspin and places, things like that were kind of exciting at one point. But Gawker, I guess, has been revived. But there's there's sort of that sense that there was sort of independent stuff that you could do with nobody looking over your shoulder. You could say what you want to say. You could you could be a flamethrower if you wanted to and nobody would monkey with you. But then those those imprints and those names started to get bought up by venture capitalists or big media companies, and you couldn't do that anymore. I'm assuming newsletters are a little bit of that, too. Like, I I still want to have a Wild West saloon I can go into. Oh, for sure. And if you sort of see the pendulum swing, you had all these people who were kind of bloggers in the aughts and the early teens, myself included, who then kind of wound up working for these big media companies. And, you know, and with all the positives and negatives that come with working for a big company, and I think are both they individually, people like Matt Iglesias and Andrew Sullivan and Glenn Greenwald, who were bloggers, and then just sort of writers in general are sort of like, you know, like getting sick of working for these big high-bound institutions and thinking like, ah, oh, it'd be fun to go out, of, you know, now if I can make a living without any of those constraints, um, 
that's pretty appealing. I mean, the funny thing is, of course, the pendulum then swings back because you also lose colleagues and editors and support and a community when you leave a big institution. And so you're starting to see some of these individual writers say, oh, this is fun, but actually I kind of miss having an editor and I kind of miss having colleagues. And are there ways to recreate that on these new platforms? And so I do think you sort of see a pendulum that's always swinging around this stuff in journalism. So uh, you may have partly answered the question as to why there isn't a Ben Smith newsletter. I know it's been offered to you and and you're a big name in journalism and I'm sure you could command one of these gigantic substack advances that I keep reading about. So so why why didn't you do it? Um, you know, I mean I I'm enjoying working for the New York Times. Honestly, I don't want I, I and I and I really love having great editors. Um, but I would say I also I do think that you know, you don't there are a lot I mean a lot of journalists are really more interested in the stuff they cover than they are in themselves and their own voices. Like I, and I'd rather sort of have the option of, you know, of being of like changing my mind and not telling my audience what they want to hear and annoying the people who thought that they agreed with me because I've come to some different conclusion or found something different or wandered in a different direction. And I do think that one thing about when you become a brand or a franchise or sort of your own thing is that you can become captive to the audience that you build. And it's kind of a luxury to work for a big institution where you don't have to be that. That's so weird. I mean, it's kind of counterintuitive and, and different from what we just said, too, which is that people are going to newsletters because they can say whatever they want and they can be flamethrowers. But you're saying, well, no, you just have a different set of bosses. In this case, it's your base. It's your subscription base. Yeah, that you, totally. And I think that's true in all subscription businesses. And it's a bit of a luxury to work for a place where it's like, you know what? Sorry, I, I like totally disagree with everybody reading me and screw you, right? Like that's a... That's a real luxury that I enjoy. I, I mean, the other interesting tension is between the idea of it being the Wild West and people who, I mean, Substack, because they they seem willing to take on people who have some scratches and dents in their reputations or who have said things that other people find un- unpalatable. So the question is, like, what is Substack? I mean, you mentioned, I think, Roxanne Gay doesn't like some of the, didn't like some of the transgender stuff that uh, other people at Substack might have said or written. So, but is it is it the same? It's not really the same as my colleague at the newsroom, in the newsroom of the New York Times or the Washington Post has these, you know, has said or done these things which I find unpalatable and disruptive to staff harmony and that kind of stuff. I mean, there is no set of colleagues at Substack, except that if you're at Substack and there's somebody there that you think is some freaking crypto Nazi, you know, should that bother you? And it seems like some of the writers are struggling with that question. Yeah, I think I think it is. A, I mean, it's a hard question in any institution you work, like how much, particularly in media, you know, how much does the worst thing that's written on the website that day, how much do you kind of own it and how much does it reflect on you? I I think there's a reality that we all sort of need to come to grips with that you just have no control on the internet. There is a a new set of platforms where anyone can make a living writing for an audience that enjoys their, their work. And whether you want them to not, it just doesn't matter at all. Like you have no control. It's not, you know, they can get banned from the big social media platforms, doesn't matter. It's a, you know, it's it's a, in with all the with all the good and all the bad that comes from that sort of opening up. Like there's, although it, it is also different from the earlier version of this in that they are really people are talking directly to their own audience. It's not really playing out on social media. It's not playing out in big public feuds. It's playing out in kind of more private, kind of contained conversations. But I do think that all these arguments over there are a lot of arguments around what is sort of the boundary of acceptable speech, and I think. You know, they're not. There's no institution that can set those boundaries anymore, and so the arguments are a little bit pointless. All right. Well, first of all, thank you for doing this. This is fascinating stuff, and I am a big fan. Ben Smith is media columnist for the New York Times and the founder and former editor in chief of BuzzFeed News. Uh, we're going to come back with an interview with Heather Cox Richardson, who's an example of a newsletter writer who really gets you away from the rattle and hum uh, of the Beltway or of New York City. You can almost hear the silence of her main peninsula, the occasional foghorn or buoy puncturing it uh, as she writes about current affairs. So we'll come back with her after this. Read my letter once again. Open your heart, let me come in. Don't hold back your foolish pride. Read.
When we think of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. So now that we sort of talked a little bit about the landscape of newsletters, let's talk about a specific one. That's what we're going to do for the rest of the show. And we're going to talk to somebody who is probably, given her general demeanor, uncomfortable with labels like breakout star of the newsletter world. But she is. Heather Cox Richardson is a professor of history at Boston College. She's the author of many books, including How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. And she writes the newsletter Letters from an American. American. In fact, either you know exactly who she is and, you know, and, and open her newsletter first thing in the morning or you're about to probably become that kind of person. So first of all, welcome to our show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. We should, first of all, just have you describe in, in a thumbnail what your newsletter is. My newsletter is actually started as a, as a series of Facebook posts, and I actually post every day on Facebook the same material that I post in the newsletter. So the newsletter is an attempt to take a look at American politics, really, but the state of American democracy every single day. But I do it from the perspective of a historian, not as a political journalist or as a political myself. So I'm, I have a bit of a different perspective. I tend to see longer trends. I tend to miss the shiny objects and go for the longer changes that maybe only a political historian with 30 years experience can see. Right. I mean, that's you've described the strength of the newsletter, I think, that you do miss the shiny object. That, In fact, as now a pretty longtime reader of your newsletter, I feel as though what I'm about to get is somebody thinking really hard in a very long form about whatever's happening right at this moment. You know, and it is there's a voice to your newsletter that is very, very distinct and a purpose to your newsletter that I think is very distinct from any of the other political newsletters I read or can even think of. So I guess maybe the one of the things I want to ask you a little bit more about is about the relationship with the reader that you have with the newsletter. It's not like writing a book. It's not like other kinds of print journalism, at least not in my experience. There's some way in which, because it's a letter that you're sending to somebody, it feels different. Maybe you could say a little bit about how, how you feel about that relationship with the reader. It's an interesting relationship because for me especially, because I grew up with a mother who wrote letters constantly and I have always written letters. I grew up in the country and, and you know, phone calls were really prohibitively expensive. And my best friends and I wrote voluminous letters to each other pretty much every single day. So I had a, a good sense of communication through, through the medium of writing. And in fact, it's really pretty much how I make sense of the world. I often describe things to myself in words, simply because that's the way we used to communicate. And anybody who was ever on the receiving end of my private letters recognized is that that's always been, for all the fact that I've written a bunch of books and all that, that's always been where, you know, my sense of humor came out and I made sort of the smarter observations that I didn't really dare to enshrine permanently in a book. So for me, it's a continuation of my life and my observations. The funny thing about it for me, though, is, of course, two things. One is that when I write, and when I began writing, I, I wrote the newsletter not deliberately. I certainly had never even heard of a newsletter when I began. I simply answered people's questions on my Facebook page. And then it that grew very, very rapidly. And then it turned into people saying, you know, couldn't you please send this to people through email so they don't have to go on Facebook? And then all of a sudden there was a newsletter. And so the funny thing to me is that I still sit at the same desk with the same computer when I used to write to, you know, four people. And now I'm writing to many, many, many times that. And there's this funny thing where I sit down sometimes at night and I think, 
oh yeah, I really don't dare to say that. And I think, well, I would say that to my friends. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do as opposed to thinking, oh, I've got a, I've got a right to a specific audience now. And so there's a weird intimacy and also, I don't know, pr almost privacy to it. I, I don't know. It's, it is very, very different than writing a piece for any kind of national or international media and very different than writing a book as well. I love that thing you said about you, you would say that to your friends. Because I think also when we write, I don't know, Vonnegut had this thing about when he wrote, he had this imaginary person looking over his shoulder or a person, a real person, his sister in an imaginary way looking over his shoulder because his sister really liked him and loved him, but she, she wasn't super impressed by him. You know, so if he wrote something that he thought his sister would accept, <laughs> he thought, OK, that's probably pretty good. And it sounds like your test of this similarly is if I sent this to my friends, to somebody I really know, would, oh, would that absolutely. fly with them? Yeah. And I do the exact same thing. I literally have people in mind that I'm writing to. But if you go back to the beginning, it was much more casual. You know, there was lots of sort of like, ah, you know, this story, you know, was, was stupid or whatever, in a way that now I am more aware of the fact that it's not that I, that I have a different tone. It's that I recognize that, that there's an awful lot of eyes who don't have a lot of time who are reading me. And I try very hard not to use throwaway words. So when I finish a piece every night, I tend to cut about a third of it out thinking, oh, you know, I don't need that adjective. Oh, I don't need that. I think, you know, all that sort of thing. It's much less sort of chatty now than it used to be. One thing that really struck my students, and they liked it a lot, I think they probably only saw one example of it, is there are these moments. I mean, you, it's a punishing schedule, what you're doing right now. And there are uh, times when, in a state of obvious exhaustion, you will just sort of say, nope, go into bed. And then there's usually this pristine, bucolic main photograph that goes up there in place of your newsletter. My students loved that. And I think they loved it because there was something very real about it. Like, I just can't do it. I'm going to bed. Maybe you can say a little bit more. I'm, I'm guessing your readers love it too, even if they're a little disappointed not to get their fix of you. Well, it's funny. Yes, that's that started with. So, so first of all, I do it every day and have since the beginning. And everyone's like, take days off, take days off. And I don't think people understand. I'm going to write it whether or not I send it out because mm. I write every single day just because that's what I do. I, it is a very, when you say grueling schedule, that's the other thing I think people don't realize. Sometimes those pieces take about 10 hours and I have a full-time job. Mm. So I don't start it until about eight o'clock at night. So that's why sometimes I post at four or five in the morning is it's taken that long. So it's very much a grueling schedule, but I actually didn't start doing the pictures but what happened was we were on vacation before, long before COVID or right before COVID, which seems a long time ago now. And there was one that we'd been hiking all day. And, you know, my partner was asleep and I was sitting there in the hotel chair trying to write. And I'm like, I can't. In the course of this, I have literally fallen asleep sitting up four times in my chair, which I've never done before, even when I had three little kids, you know. Mm. And so I and I just happened to take a decent picture. We were in Utah that day and I just threw it up being like, this is what I'm doing. Sorry, give me a break. People loved it. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that, well, I might not need a break from writing. Other people needed a break from reading. So after that, I started to incorporate photographs. And, uh, you know, my partner is quite a good photographer. And I love his stuff because he is a working commercial fisherman. So there is sort of a, a very real, his stuff is beautiful, but it's, it's what a working fisherman sees. And it's just part of our lives. So it's kind of uh, all of it together is kind of, I think, perhaps a picture of, you know, somebody who, who cares a lot about the world that I live in. We're talking to Heather Cox Richardson right now, who writes one of the most successful and widely read political newsletters in, in America, if not the most. And, you know, I wanted to say one more thing about your writing schedule, which is that I, I not through any calculation, but I think one of the odd benefits of it is that because, for example, if you're a fan, uh, uh, an HCR fan, as I am, one of the things you like is that the May 3rd newsletter you get on May 4th because you file it so early in the morning. But that also means it's the first thing in a lot of people's inboxes. I know for me, you know, if I look at today's inbox, it, you will be the first thing in the inbox because it got filed around one in the morning when the day was new. And, and in a way, I think that that really gives you an odd kind of primacy in people's inboxes boxes. 
I think that's right. And of course, it was entirely inadvertent. It was only that because I couldn't start till after I'd finished my day job. Um, that's just the way things happened. But I'll tell you something that I realized the other day, and I've not so said this to anyone before. And that's that, you know, I read or I write all the time. I've always been that way from the time I was a little kid. And I used to get incredibly frustrated with cereal boxes because they would have like, you know, the nutritional information and maybe when you were a kid, some fun facts or something on the back. But there was no pattern to them. And I always used to say when I was like a teenager, early 20s, what we really needed to do was to get together with a cereal company and just run a long standing story across the back of cereal boxes so that every time you picked up a new cereal box, you'd have the next installment of the story. And it hit me just the other day that essentially, while I'm not putting these things on a cereal box, at this point, that's what it is. You're, you Americans who read this are part of an experiencing, and as I as I wrote to you in an email before, this is really not about me. It's really about a lot of people coming together to think about what America should be. And by reading these, we're all sort of participating in this ongoing story and very curious about how it's going to come out, but it's almost a make your own story and you get to decide that. So quite inadvertently, I seem to have managed to, to make the, the cereal box fantasy come true without the cereal box. Yeah. If Charles Dickens had thought about that, he would have had David Copper flakes or something, you know, <laughs> installments that you could read on cereal boxes. So, you know, you said something which I, I'm going to push back on a little bit, which is, I think you used the phrase something like how America should be. I, I don't get that from your newsletter. What I get, you know, what do they say about country music that it's three chords and the truth? What I get from your newsletter, what I like about it is it's first of all, somebody who maybe partly because of your somewhat geographic isolation on a peninsula in Maine, but also because of who you are as a thinker and scholar is first of all, fundamentally committed to telling the truth as best as you can discern it and telling us what in your understanding is happening right now and how it squares with what you know about how things have happened historically. I guess I don't necessarily pick up, maybe I'm missing it, the idea that you're trying to tell us, oh, America should be. I don't feel like it's that prescriptive. I think it's more descriptive. I, I don't know, but now you can push back at me. Well, I'm not sure we're pushing back. I think maybe it's important for me to define what I what I mean when I say the way America should be. I am firmly committed to the Enlightenment concept that so long as we make arguments based in fact, um, and, and with all the, the, the theoretical caveats to that, yeah, you know, you can't ever really, you know, Schrodinger's cat and all that. But, but I do believe you can approach an approximation of what actually happened. And so long as you're making arguments based in fact, that people will choose the better option of those two things. So I'm absolutely committed to putting facts in front of people. I am not committed at all to how they come out with what they want to do with those facts, because I, I do, I believe in people, I believe in democracy. And that's the other piece of what I try to do is that I am firmly committed to American democracy with the idea that, you know, sometimes people think, oh, you know, she's an exceptional, she's an American exceptionalist, she's raw, raw America. I am raw, raw America in a really big way, but that does not mean I don't understand that we have never lived up to our potential. In fact, if you read any of my books, you know, especially the last one is really about how much our concept of freedom has depended on unfreedom for people of color and women. But I do believe that the concept, the theoretical concept of democracy is the form of government most likely to enable people to determine the, their own fates, to be able to determine how they're going to live and what their lives are going to look like. So I'm deeply committed to facts because I'm committed to democracy and I'm deeply committed to democracy because I am committed to human self-determination. So when I say telling people how the world should be, that is absolutely not about a, a political party today. People keep trying to put me into a political party today. And I'm like, it, it doesn't fit. This just These concepts just don't fit. You know, if you want me to talk about theories about um, conservative history, liberal history, you know, progressive history, socialist history, I can do all of those things. But that's not what I'm trying to do in this newsletter. So when I say the way the world should be, that is, I want Americans to make arguments based on facts again. And that's, that's, it's entirely what this enterprise is all about. Yeah, I, I just I want to just respond to that and then ask you one last question. I mean, one of the things that I've 
sort of, you know, when you, when you, it's interesting, I've been a working journalist since 76. I teach occasionally. When you teach, you have to think about much more about what it is you've been doing. And the phrase that I keep coming back to, to probably the exasperation of my students, is a grasp of reality. Would this particular journalist, would this particular journalism, would this particular form of journalism give you a better or worse grasp of reality? Which, oddly enough, isn't a question journalists ask themselves very often, but it's sort of ultimately the question. And I think your newsletter, Heather Cox Richardson, gives people a really good grasp of reality. My question, my final question is, how long are you going to keep going? I, there was one point where you were definitely committed to 100 days into the Biden presidency. That famously has come and gone. How are you feeling about the long march? You know, it's funny you say that because there's no doubt that I've got to find a better working relationship with this newsletter simply because, you know, I'm 58 years old. You know, my partner and I would like to travel and, and it is a schedule that is really unthinkable. That being said, there are a lot of people who now depend on this, and I do think it serves a really important function right now in American society. So my answer to that is going to be that this grew organically. I never intended to write this newsletter. It really was, I got stung by a yellow jacket and I'm allergic. So I was observing the reaction and started, I was like literally sitting there at the table, not wanting to move around and started answering questions for people on Facebook. That to me sounds like a pretty organic start. And it is my sense as, a, as somebody who's lived a, a pretty, you know, varied and fairly long life that this will reach, it, it will, it will die or it, or it will change organically in the same way that it began organically. But I don't know what that's going to look like. I had originally thought that it was going to be after immediately after Biden, after Biden's 100 days. But of course, I didn't foresee the, the January 6th insurrection or the fact that the Republican Party currently is refusing to accept that a Democrat is president. And and again, I, I point again to our American democracy. This is absolutely unprecedented and it is phenomenally anti-democratic. And because I would like very much to protect democracy, I guess I'll keep read, writing as long as people are in the game with me trying to do the same. All right. Heather Cox Richardson, it's so great to talk to you. Letters from an American uh, is one of the most influential and certainly popular newsletters in America. Great to uh, actually hear your voice on our show. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Got down on my knees, grabbed my pen and bowed my head. Tried to summon all that my heart finds true. Send it in my letter to you. And we're back. Uh, I'd like to say thanks to Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer. She's here in the studio. Betsy Kaplan was the producer of this episode. Meanwhile, uh, time to talk to uh, two more uh, of our favorite newsletter writers. These are both newsletters to which I subscribe. Uh, Gabe Fleischer is the author of the newsletter Wake Up to Politics. He's currently a student at Georgetown University. Isaac Saul is a journalist whose work has appeared in Time Magazine, HuffPost, and on CNN, among others. He's the author of the newsletter Tangle. Uh, we want to just maybe begin by having each of them describe the newsletter that they produce. Uh, Isaac, why don't you go first? Tell people uh, what Tangle is. Sure. Thank you so much for having me on, Colin. Uh, Tangle is essentially a newsletter that summarizes the best arguments from the right and left on what the news of the day is. So, you know, typically there's a big political story. So when you open Tangle, you'll see a quick summary of that story. And then the left's perspective, the right's perspective and then my take. And uh, that's sort of like the heart of the newsletter. There are a few other things in there. You know, I answer a reader question and do a roundup of some cool numbers from the last 24 hours and those kinds of things. But usually it's about sort of showing people some views from across the political spectrum on whatever the big debate of the day is. Yes. Yeah, so one of the reader questions that you have to answer several times is where the, why the left is called the left and the right is called the right. But we don't have time to go into that right now. You <laughs> get, get Tangle if you want to find that out. So yeah, just maybe say a little bit more about, I mean, first of all, I find this, one of my, one of my students actually discovered this and kind of turned me on to it, this, and Gabe's as far as that goes too. And, and I find this is a really, really useful thing. I'm surprised. In some ways, I'm kind of surprised that, that nobody else has thought about doing this before. You really sort of take the problem, which is polarization and siloing, and it's kind of, kind of vaccinate against it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I came to doing this work from growing up in a really politically divided place in suburban Pennsylvania and having a lot of friends and family who I just saw constantly talking past each other. And then sort of on the other side of that as a journalist, realizing that, you know, whenever I went and published a story, you know, if I wrote something for Huffington Post or I wrote something for Fox News, it was going to immediately be dismissed by half the country based on where it was being published. And so I kind of had this dream of like, let's just be open about the fact that people have biases and reporters have biases and opinion columnists have biases and just say, that's okay, but we're going to show you, you know, a balance of those views all in one place. You can kind of just engage with the full spectrum of ideas that are out there. And, you know, frankly, I didn't know if it was going to work. I mean, the country is very divided and places like, you know, your Fox News or CNN, they, they do well in an era of polarization. And so, you know, I, I was uneasy about how it would go, but the response has been incredible. And it's very clear to me that there is a huge segment of the American population that really wants this. Hmm. So both of you are kind of celebrating a major anniversaries or, or career events right now. We'll come back to Isaac for his in just a second. But uh, Gabe, you're uh, celebrating the 10th anniversary of Wake Up to Politics, which is weird because you're 19. <laughs> That, that's right. Yeah, I started the newsletter when I was about nine years old um, for my first subscriber, who was my mom. And uh, I've been doing it for about 10 years now and about 50,000 readers. And I'm um, kind of like Isaac, also Wake Up to Politics. It's kind of focused on summarizing the, the day's biggest news, um, kind of in a way that's co- concise, but also comprehensive and kind of full of context. And, um, you know, and, and just tries to do it also like Isaac and kind of a non, I guess, whereas Tangle is maybe bipartisan, I try to do it in a kind of a nonpartisan fashion without kind of any opinion or just kind of, you know, giving kind of just the facts. Yeah. So why, uh, why do you think your subscribers are your subscribers? In other words, what would attract them to you? There are a lot of political newsletters out there. Um, what is it that you're doing that you, you think is special to them? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess I would say I think one big thing is just the style that I try to write in. You know, obviously I'm 19, so I think I come at journalism with a bit of a different perspective than most kind of professional journalists. So I just try to write in a style that's very simple, that just tries to explain things, doesn't assume that people already know, you know, the entire backstory of, of a certain news event. I just try to kind of walk people through it and explain it in really simple terms, but also in a way that is comprehensive, which is why I'm really proud that my audience spans from, you know, students in middle school and high school, even younger than me, as well as political professionals, members of Congress, their staffs, people in the White House. And so there's really is this kind of wide span. And I try to write for them all just kind of in a way that that's simple and, and, and makes sense, but also adds value so people can really understand what's going on. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you also, and, and this will bring us back to Isaac also, um, who's had a different kind of career experience or career arc. But you, some people looking at you, like maybe even me looking at you, I'm thinking, wow, you know, I learned a lot about what I know about journalism working in a newspaper newsroom for a lot of years when I was starting out, you know, and there's kind of an apprenticeship process that goes on and some mentoring, both good and bad mentoring uh, that you get in that situation. You haven't had the benefit of it or even really had a window for it since you started at the age of nine and you're 19 now. Do you ever think about that, ever think about sort of what maybe you you would know that you don't know if, in fact, you don't ever work in a situation where you have uh, sort of older colleagues who might be telling you stuff? Yeah, I mean, I certainly, look, I don't pretend to know everything about journalism. Certainly, I have so much to learn and a lot to learn. I have been lucky to, you know, not in a newsroom setting, but but learn from a lot of, you know, other journalists. I'm from St. Louis, so, you know, journalists, um, the kind of in the local media that where, where I kind of came up in and then also now that I'm here in Washington from from other journalists that I've gotten to know. So I certainly have a lot to learn. I guess I will say, though, you know, what, what I've learned is you can learn a lot. I, I think there's a lot to be learned in journalism school. There's a lot to be learned in a newsroom. There's also a lot to be learned just by doing it. And, you know, I've been doing it, like I said, for 10 years now. My newsletter predates Substack. It predates Axios or Punchbowl or a lot of the other newsletters that are out there. I've just kind of been doing it for 10 years now. And I think little by little, you know, I've learned a lot just and I've grown a lot, certainly as a writer, just by every morning waking up and trying to do the best that I can. And, and little by little, I, I think it's been a huge source of growth. But but certainly I, I have a lot to learn and 
I, I think there's I think there's a lot of different ways to gain experience. Oh yeah, that kind and, of knowledge. And I think this, you know, the experience that you're having parallels what was going on in blogging 20 years ago. And a lot of the bloggers who rose up and became incredibly popular national bloggers would say at the time, you know, what the difference between me uh, and a, a journalist for the New York Times is a paycheck. They get a paycheck. I don't. But other than that, they don't have any qualifications that I don't have. Uh, and I think one of the things people under, do come to understand about journalism is if you're smart and purposeful and accurate and dedicated uh, and courageous, you probably do pretty well at it. Um, so, Isaac, you're celebrating kind of an anniversary, not an anniversary, but you're you're disentangling from your other job to be full-time tangles. Say some more about that. Yeah, I mean, I have basically, you know, been in the political journalism space for seven, eight, nine years now. I was a journalism major in college and school editor for, or editor for the school paper. And so, you know, I, I had that more traditional path, I think, com- maybe compared to Gabe. But in the last two years, I've been writing this newsletter pretty much every day, uh, Monday through Friday. And it's grown substantially to the point where, you know, the economics of it are simply better. And I enjoy the process of putting together the daily newsletter more than I enjoy sort of the the daily drumbeat of what I was doing as a political reporter, as a freelancer. And so, you know, I think for the last year and a half, two years, I've been doing both at the same time and sort of seeing what it's like next to each other. And there's something really special about having your own platform that's yours, that is, you know, not, I guess, chained down by the reputation of wherever you're publishing your work. I mean, I'm bringing something that's like a very fresh brand and a fresh look to people. So the only thing that really matters is my writing and the arguments that I'm making. And that is like a really, really appealing space for me to be in. I think you know, more than being a traditional reported daily news issue, Tangle is a lot more about analysis and breaking down opinion. I mean, there, there are, of course, elements of journalism and all of that. But um, for, for me, it's really about exposing people to this broad view of opinions that exist across the United States and frankly, across the world. I mean, we have readers in 40 countries outside the U.S. who are just interested in American politics and interested in our format. So it feels really good to be at a place where I can go in and do this full time. And I think that kind of speaks to the efficacy of this newsletter model that Substack is is running and that other newsletters have successfully built on, you know, through ads or whatever else. Um, and, and I think Ben Thompson sort of calls it being a sovereign writer, which is kind of how I define myself in that I am, it's me and I have some people who help produce the newsletter, but it's, it's my content, it's my piece and I'm fully independent now, which is a really exciting moment. Well, yeah, congratulations. So Gabe, you may face a different set of, uh, choices, um, partly because of where you are in your life. You'll graduate from college fairly soon. Um, You already have more readers than a lot of people who are long-serving professional (laughs) journalists do. So there's, you know, little doubt that you could keep this going for the foreseeable future. Is that what you think you're going to do? Or is there some part of you that wants to take this reputation you've established and see what it's worth to the Washington Post or BuzzFeed or, or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm only a freshman right now, so I, I, I feel like I do have some time to kind of decide, and I don't know exactly kind of what, where my path will take me. But but I will say, you know, I think a few years ago, probably my answer would have been, you know, that, that I'd rather kind of go to the Times or the Post or some other news outlet if they would take me and kind of join a larger outlet. But I think, like Isaac said, you know, I think the rise of Substack has shown, even though I'm not on Substack, but but kind of the the growth of newsletters there has shown that it really is a viable option you know, if you have a large enough platform and an audience that is willing to support you, you know, it's something you can do kind of full time. And, and I love, I, I also, I, I love that description, sovereign writer. I think it's really special if you're able to kind of build kind of independent platform and people that kind of trust you and kind of separate from any other brand. So I think a few years ago, that would have seemed like a pipe dream, but, but now it very much seems like a, a possibility. And, and if, if I can, it is something I'd love to do kind of long term, just continue building kind of my, my own platform and, and see where it goes. All right. So uh, ironically, I want to ask you guys questions uh, about time. And I only have three minutes and 
you know, 45 seconds left in the whole show. But, you know, I, I do think, you know, even talking to my undergraduate students, they, they like both of your newsletters, partly because they can get through them really quickly. They also read something called The Skim with two M's. Uh, and uh, Isaac, one of the things you do is you, you post, uh, as does, I think, Axios, you post estimated reading time, uh, how long it's going to take to get through all this. Uh, are you kind of aiming at a demographic that's thinking, I don't have all day to master this particular aspect of reality? Yeah, it's a good question. It's it's actually almost kind of the inverse of that, which is, you know, I am advertising and positioning myself as a place where you're going to go a little bit deeper on the news than you might in just a, a platform like the skim. You know, I'm I'm saying if you give me 10 or 12 minutes of your time, then you won't have to read or watch anything else for the rest of the day. Like you, you're going to get these quick hits and you're going to get a deep dive on this one major issue where you're going to learn a lot and you'll see all the views out there. And this way, you know, you don't have to read through the Wall Street Journal and Fox News and the New York Times and the Washington Post just to try and get to something that sort of resembles, you know, a truth or middle ground or holistic position. It's just like this one thing will do it. And I, I do get a lot of positive feedback about people saying that they appreciate the time at the top of the newsletter, but most are, are a 10 to 12 minute read, which is, I think, a lot longer than, you know, the Axios or the Skim yeah, and yeah. E even Gabe's newsletter. Right. So uh, the only problem with that, Isaac, is I read your newsletter every day. I never have any idea what Doug Emhoff is doing. I have to read Gabe to find out where is Doug Emhoff? <laughs> what is he doing right now? So, uh, Gabe, I actually have a minute left. Could you just talk about that? I, I found my students also liked the fact that they could get they could get a pretty good snapshot of what's going on by reading you, and it didn't take that long. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say staying concise, it is a big focus of mine. You know, the, the New York Times actually called me the anti-skim. So I do like to think that I do give some <laughs> context and go a little deeper too. But, you know, I think a special thing about the newsletter format is, you know, people kind of build you as part of their daily routine. So I, I kind of, my hope is, you know, people wake up with their cup of coffee or if they have to get off to work, they're reading the newsletter. And then my hope is, yeah, you kind of whatever you need to know about American politics the rest of the day can find it in kind of a quick snapshot, including, like you mentioned, what all our leaders are doing isn't something you can find in many other outlets. But I have it every morning right at the end what each branch of government is doing. So you can kind of have a good glance at what's ahead and then you can go on with the rest of your day and read again tomorrow. All right. So we'll wake up to politics. Uh, that's Gabe Fleischer. Isaac Saul uh, does Tangle. Uh, I hope this show has made you maybe think about dipping your toes into the waters of newsletters if you have not already. Thanks again to Betsy Kaplan and to Kat Pastor and uh, to you for listening. I'm gonna sit right